Would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark? Find your way to the opening chapter in the Gospel of Mark. The title of my sermon today is Faithful Fishing. I want to take you into the opening of the Gospel of Mark to show you Jesus, to talk to you about who He is and what He has accomplished for us, and to talk to you about this invitation that He makes to His people to go fishing with Him. This is a rather popular line in the Gospel of Mark where he talks about, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This invitation to be faithful uh, fishers with Jesus. Now, we have this saying in our culture that familiarity breeds content. And so when I'm in passages like, uh, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, that is a very familiar passage, or John 3.16, for God so loved the world, or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. As a teacher of God's Word, I'm always worried about the reality that familiarity breeds content. In fact, at the end of my message, I want to come back to this uh, cultural idiom that familiarity breeds content. But meanwhile, I want to get us into uh, the text. And so the first point you have on your outline this morning is intro to message. If you have your Bibles open to the Gospel of Mark, you see Mark wastes no time. Mark jumps right into the historical Jesus. He, he, he just he jumps right into it. Now, the fact of the matter is that while Mark jumps right into the story of Jesus, this story of Jesus is a part of a bigger story. It is a part of the story of a triune God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, who creates the world, who creates the cosmos, who creates this planet that we're on right now, who, who places in this planet humans who He makes in His own image, and, and gives His love to them. Those humans reject His love, and, and He responds to them with great mercy. Though they deserve punishment for rejecting His love, though they deserve exile for, for, for rebelling against Him, He responds and reveals to them a plan that He has to solve our rebellion. And that plan involves the sending of the Son to become a man who is the historical Jesus. So this Jesus who who we read of in chapter 1, verse 1. You see this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, is a man of history, but he is also God the Son of eternity. So the text of of Mark, it, it jumps right into the ministry of Jesus, but we need to have in mind that bigger backdrop, that bigger story of the triune God who is creator, and who is lover of of his creation even though they have rebelled against him. The ancient historical figure, Mark, is also a man of history. Uh, Other ancient historical figures like Papias have attributed this gospel to John Mark, who is a colleague of the Apostle Paul and is also a colleague of the historic Peter. Mark is a disciple. He's a disciple, a follower of Jesus. The word disciple, methetes, means a pupil, a learner, an apprentice. He was a disciple who God the Father used to write about God the Son, Jesus. Mark gives us a look into the first century faith of the eyewitness community, the original followers of Jesus, documenting the historical details of Jesus' teaching, uh, the the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, and and gives us just insights into his, his life and his heart and his love. Mark has a particular emphasis on the geographical region of Galilee. About two-thirds of the text of the Gospel of Mark focuses on the region of Galilee. 
Mark cared about this place, Galilee, and clearly Jesus did as well. I hope you too have places that you care about as a believer. In particular, I, I hope uh, for those of you who are members of Delray Church that you care for West Los Angeles and you care for this mission field that he's placed us in. Well, Mark cared about the mission field of Galilee, and so he records Jesus' work there. Again, two-thirds of his gospel account focuses on, on Galilee. He really cares about this place. This was a hometown for Jesus, presumably for 30 years of his life before his ministry began. So when you, know, when you think about, I often ask people, especially if they've moved a lot, like, where is home for you? you know? When you think about being home, where is that? Uh, I suspect for Jesus and, and John Mark, they would have said Galilee. So Mark also uh, documents, of course, Jesus' ministry in the great city of Jerusalem, which is a place, of course, that is central to God's own heart in the storyline of the Bible, and the election of Israel, and, and God establishing the temple in Jerusalem, uh, and, and so forth. So Jesus loves this place. As we are getting into the text, I want you to understand that. And now we're going to move from intro to message to into uh, the ministry of Jesus. As I said, Mark wastes no time. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By, by verse 4, he's already at John the Baptist, right? I mean, the other gospels take some time to get you up to John the Baptist, but Mark, Mark jumps right in and takes you to it really quickly. The gospel of Mark is written for a Roman audience. Roman literature is that way. Roman literature is very action-packed. Uh, so, so Mark writes in a way that is sensitive to, to his audience. He writes in a very action-packed style. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, if you're looking uh, at the Gospel of Matthew later on by, by way of comparison, it begins with a long genealogy. The Gospel of Luke has a long genealogy. In the Jewish context, genealogies were really important because the story of the history of Jesus is a part of this greater story. That greater story, the creation, the fall uh, the people of Israel, with the election of Israel to bring about the salvation of the world through a promised people, genealogies became very important. The seed of Abram is very important. So Jewish audiences would be keenly interested in that. And as well, for those who are making the claim Jesus is the Messiah, you should believe in him and follow him, what was really important was to see that he is of the line of Abram. And so Matthew writes about that, and, and, and Luke writes about that. Romans wouldn't be interested in that. You know, it's like, who are all these Jewish people, whatever, can we just get to it, you know? So Mark just jumps in. The prophecies of Israel were not uh, the Gentile Roman uh, prophecies. So, so Mark is just going to jump right into the historical Jesus and, and the beginnings of his ministry. Now that said, Jewish prophecy and scripture also matter for uh, Mark. And, and so Mark, of course, is going to weave in some prophecies uh, and you'll see that, in fact, as, as we begin. In verse 2, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. So prophecy matters, but it doesn't have the same emphasis as some of the other Gospels. Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me say something about the word Gospel as we're getting into the text here. It, it is a word, as I said earlier, I'm always sensitive to familiarity, breeding, content, uh, it is a word that you hear a lot. Uh, we, it's even a genre of music, right? Gospel music, you know? You could go on iTunes and type in gospel music and you get all kinds of albums that you can download. 
Well, what, what, what is the word gospel fundamentally all about? In the Roman context, the word gospel was related to news from an emperor. Uh, Jesus is presented as the emperor of the earth in the Gospel of Mark, who comes in power to free sinners and make them citizens of a new kingdom. The good news, euangelion, the gospel, is all about Jesus and his salvation graciously given to his people. Jesus who graciously comes for his people. So many people are searching for God, but the gospel says that God has not left us to search for him or to find him, but actually that he has come to find us. He has come to fulfill his promises made to those before us. It is a history of prophecy and good news. This brings me to the first subpoint into the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came to save us. That's the good news. That good news is uh, about him saving and also about his identity as the true emperor of the earth. It's also about his drama, a divine narrative that God is working out in an epic saga that is displaying his heroic might. He is mighty to save, amen? He's mighty to save, and he's gracious to save those who have rebelled against him and want nothing to do with him. God saves, making enemies not only his friends, but also his family. His salvation comes. He builds his family. The father loves his children, adopted by the work of his only begotten son. By the coming of the son, everything changes. To prep humanity and history for this change, God sends one who comes to prepare the way. To, to, to the one who prepares the way, this John the Baptist figure who rolls out the red carpet for the ultimate one who comes, God the Son in the flesh, to gather a people for himself. So we read of this prophet, and we see this prophet John tied to the prophecies of Israel. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way. The voice, verse 3, of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So here we see God is the one who is initiating the action. God is the one who saves. God is the one who comes. God is the one who is sovereign and he's up to something. He sends the prophet. And what is the message of the prophet? The prophet is, hey, he's coming. Mark references uh, Isaiah the prophet, tying the coming of the Christ to the ancient storyline of redemption, of God the creator and the fall and Abram and Israel and all that. In verse 2 and 3, Mark references Isaiah 40, verse 3, from the Septuagint. He also blends in imagery and wording of the Exodus. So Exodus 23, 20, Isaiah 40, verse 3, uh, that's what he's pulling from. And as well, he pulls from Malachi 3, 1. So he quotes Isaiah the prophet, but he also ties in Moses and he ties in Malachi. Uh, with this, Jesus is displayed as the one who comes in fulfillment of the law, Moses, and the prophets, Malachi, bringing a new Exodus. In Exodus, there is a promise uh, to send a messenger, Exodus 23, 20, I'll quote it, to guard you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared, end quote. That is, through the wilderness to the promised land. Isaiah 40, verse 3, looks forward to the coming of a messenger in the desert who will go before the people of God and inaugurate a second Exodus to prepare God's people for cleansing and salvation. That is the point. Jesus came to cleanse us. Jesus came to save us. John uh, the Baptist, the baptizer, came in the imagery of Exodus. 
and Isaiah. Note that he is in the wilderness. He is, uh, uh, he is the prophet that the prophet foresaw. Look at verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the point in front of us. Jesus came to save us. To save us from what? To save us how? To save us from what? To save us from the penalty of sin? To save us from who? The God who will judge us. How will he save us? By taking that judgment upon himself. What is that judgment? What is that penalty? It's death. So Jesus comes on a mission to die for us. And he does just that. He dies. But it doesn't end here. He rises himself up from the dead in life. And that resurrection life he gives to his people. He takes death and then he gives life. And that life is available to everyone here today. Forgiveness is available to you. It is a gift that he offers to you. And he makes this gift come through repentance and faith. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God in faith. It is marked by a deep remorse for what we have done, participating in this rebellion against God. It is also marked by a change of our hearts within, a work ultimately of the Holy Spirit. We don't save ourselves. We didn't make that decision for Christ. It is something that He has done within us. The Spirit regenerates us, washes us deep within. Hence, the Jewish practice of mikvah, ceremonial washing, or what we call baptism, is used to, to show this. And that's exactly what John is doing, John the baptizer. John is in the waters of the Jordan. Uh, we know archaeologically that the waters of the Jordan, in the area where he was, the, these are really murky waters. They're not, they're not like nice flowing kind of Hawaiian, clear, blue waters. This is like murky, nasty water. Uh, John is washing them in dirty water. He's positioning them in this really murky area of the Jordan, which was culturally insulting to Jewish people because Jewish people at that time and even today, they are a, a, a religion of ritual washing. So they would wash, their priests would wash Outside of the temple, there's mikvah, these pools, and you wash yourself before you enter the temple. They, they practice washing a lot as a part of their worship. And there's a lot of beauty in, in that symbolism in, uh, in the days of old. But they specifically practiced a kind of baptism in the Jordan, right, just outside of the city, where uh, those who were outsiders, Gentiles, who wanted to convert to Judaism... They would take them outside publicly and they would baptize them in the Jordan. This is what makes uh, John kind of scandalous because he's calling out to the Jewish people to meet him in the Jordan, uh, which has that symbol of conversion for outsiders, kind of calling them out like, are you, are you ready? He's positioning himself outside of the city in the murky waters of the Jordan, picturing a new remnant that is being pulled from God's people through repentance. Mark quotes Exodus, as we saw. In Exodus, the people were being delivered through water, the splitting of the Red Sea. And now there is a new Exodus that is dawning as the people come through waters, and then they will re-enter the promised land, the city, now drenched in water, having symbolized themselves as being cleansed to prepare the way of the prophetic messenger who will come. There's crowds gathering, we read in the Gospels. Perhaps many were coming just out of curiosity. Who is this crazy guy who's going off on all the like 
religious intelligentsia and he's just defending it, everyone. You brood of vipers. He's calling people names. Like, who is this guy? You know, like if, if John were living today, trust his videos would go viral fast. I mean, you'd be like, man, who is, Andrew Tate has nothing on this guy. He just says crazy stuff, you know. And, you know, some people come to hear this preacher. Maybe there were guys there who were trying to meet cute Jewish girls. Maybe parents were dragging their kids to this guy. Rebellious teenagers, you know, mom's like, I'm going to take you down to go see Crazy John. He'll fix you right up. Throwing them in the, in the Jordan. And there they are. There's outdoor baptisms. And again, remember, these aren't the baptisms that were done in the mikvahs of the temple or the pools of the priests. This is for outsiders. So this is offensive. Come to the Jordan. Come to these murky, cold waters. Come and confess that though you are of the people of Israel, you're not actually in covenant. God is raising up a remnant to prepare the way for something that is happening. And that preparation involves repentance. Jesus came to save us. Second on your outline B, Jesus calls us to repentance. Again, repentance means to turn from sin and to turn to God. Look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were baptizing, and he, they were being baptized by John, him, in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, the word for confessing is exomologeo. It means to admit that you're wrong. It means not just to admit that you're wrong, but to also agree with the correction. I, you know, I was wrong. And, then I, and I agree with the correction, you see. To be told that's wrong and to agree that, with that in your heart and admit that, that's exomologeo. That is confession. The Bible knows nothing of modern-day priests and confession booths and, you know, walking into a little booth and saying, hey, I'm sorry I did these things. That's not what exomologeo is. Exomologeo is personal. It's real. It's communal within God's family in light of the gospel. It's a gospel thing, which modern priests and confession booths do not know. We come to the gospel. We come to Christ and Him alone in repentance and in faith. And we do so among His people. He is our priest. He is our confession booth. He is our Savior. And in confession, we are accepting His correction that we were wrong and and that, and, and that God loves us and, and, and that there's a, a sacrifice for us. The lexicon that is published by the University of Chicago unpacks exomologeo this way. I'll put it up here in front of you. To indicate acceptance of an offer or a proposal, a promise. To make an admission of wrongdoing, sin, confess, admit. That first uh, definition there, an offer. There's an offer that has been made. God has put something on the table. I'm making an offer to pay for your sins to redeem you. There's an offer of redemption, a work that is being done. There is the power of the Spirit, regeneration. Christ is offering forgiveness and the very Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. Look down at verse 8. I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with who? The Holy Spirit. The people tied the coming of the Holy Spirit at that time to a messianic figure. Uh, the Hebrew Bible ties the coming of the Messiah to uh, the movement of the Spirit. They tied the Spirit to the dawning of a new age. And in anticipation of that new age, the prophet John comes to prepare the way. For what? The Messiah and a new era that he will inaugurate. 
Look back at the text, verse 6. In verse 6, what do we see? John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. He was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is the prophet to prepare the way. Jesus is the greater prophet whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. The most menial and simple and humble of tasks, untying some sandals, are too lofty in the presence of Christ. John is a great prophet in his own right. Later in Mark 11, Jesus gives him props and, and calls John the greatest of the prophets. Mark, Mark describes the attire here in the text of the prophet John. Uh, he's, he's dressed like, uh, I don't know, he kind of, he's kind of a hippie here, right? He's getting his gear at REI. He's, he's looking like he's climbing rocks and whatever. He's looking really, really hipster. Uh, he's shown, though, in the imagery of the prophet Elijah. By way of reference, you might write down 2 Kings 1.8, Malachi 4.5. You can cross-reference this with Matthew 17.10-13. The prophet Elijah was tied to the end of the age and the coming of the Messiah. In Judaism today, there is still the belief that the Messiah is coming and that before the Messiah comes, the prophet Elijah will actually show up. In fact, the fifth ceremonial cup that is poured out to this very day in Passover Seder's in the Jewish community, the fifth cup is, uh, is the Elijah cup, and it's intended to stir that prophetic hope that Elijah's coming back, and then the Messiah comes. Now, of course, as, as uh, followers of Jesus, as Christians, we believe that this has happened. We believe that he has come. We believe that Elijah has come in the prophet John, uh, and we also believe that he's coming again. Ancient Judaism and, and uh, the Jewish Messiah and the early Jewish church, they, they believed this. Ancient Judaism that became Christianity believes in two comings of the Messiah and also Elijah preceding them. Modern Judaism will face the question when Jesus comes again, is this your first time here or have you been here before, you see? Ancient Judaism experienced him and Jesus launched his church uh, uh, saving both Jews and Gentiles into one missionary organization that we call the church that anticipates and prays and hopes for his return. Now, all of this is a matter of grace that he saves us. All of this waiting for him to come back is a matter of grace. God is patient. God wishes that none would perish. He is delaying his return to love and to save generations and tribes from the earth to gather them ultimately around his throne where we will experience his peace, his love, and his mercy. He is coming, and he has come. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, baptism again, mikvah, it's a ceremonial thing. It's acknowledging I'm dirty, I was wrong, I need cleansing. It's also when done down by the Jordan, a symbol of being outside of the covenant. You need to come into the covenant. So what is, what is Jesus doing getting into these waters? Jesus isn't guilty of sin. Isn't that what you Christians believe? Jesus isn't outside of the covenant. Don't you think he's the seed of Abram? And those genealogies in Matthew and Luke are all about that. What, what is he doing getting into the waters? Well, again, Jesus becomes the sacrifice for us. Jesus dies to save sinners. The only way that he could die for us is to be a substitute 
for us being sinless. But uh, if he's sinless, why is he getting baptized? Well, he gets baptized to display his identity in two ways. First, to identify with sinners. Jesus gets into our dirty waters and covers himself in our filth. Second, he does this to identify himself as the divine one who has come to forgive. When he's baptized, he doesn't repent. No, he rips the heavens open. Look at verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending on him. Remember, the Spirit is the sign of the new age. In creation, when you open the book of Genesis, what do you see right off the bat? You see the Spirit comes hovering over the waters as the new era of created things begins. A rabbinic tradition that described the Spirit's hovering like a dove in Genesis is a very ancient one, and so we uh, see that also in Mark. We see the dawning in Mark of a new era, a new exodus, as I already pointed out, a new creation. The imagery of the scene invokes old exodus, Israel being rescued from slavery, and now a new exodus and a new Moses and a new uh, 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 covenant that is going to come. In the Jordan River, where, where, where Israel comes and enters the Promised Land, and Yeshua, Joshua, comes and helps them build and conquer the land, now there's a new Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, who comes through the river and announces the kingdom of God. Israel crossed the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God on earth, and the waters split when Israel came through the Jordan. Now the son of David stands in the waters of the Jordan, and this time the waters don't split open, the heavens split open. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He is the very presence of God in the flesh. God the Son incarnate. When Israel entered at that very place, she did not establish the kingdom. She fell into sin. The anointed King David fell into sin. But now David's seed, the Christ, the true king, has come. And unlike David and his people, he will obey the Torah perfectly and he will give a perfect record for sin. In his life, he will recapitulate Israel's history and he will do it perfectly. This we should expect. He's God. He's perfect. He's God. He's gracious. He will give us his perfection graciously. Behold, church, behold God the Son in these filthy waters, taking our dirt upon himself. Behold the Spirit of God ascending. A new age has come. The symbol of the dove, you think of, of the story of, of Noah and the ark, right? And Malachi. But now he's come back. The Spirit has not come to an end in Israel, but is breaking loose in a new momentous way. The momentum takes the Messiah not to a castle, but to the desert. Not to a throne, but to a field. Not to a feast, but to a famine and a fight conflict. Look at verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. Now the wilderness is a wasteland. In Scripture it is associated with battle, with danger, with death, with demons, with cursing from God. Adam and Eve were driven from paradise into a wilderness. It is the barren environment of the fall. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery has a wonderful entry on the wilderness describing how original readers in scripture, in, of the Scripture saw this term. It is incidentally used here by Mark to show Jesus' mission to come not only to save us from sin by becoming a sacrifice, but also to conquer sin in the wilderness. So we see penal substitution and Christus Vicar. He goes out into the darkness and conquers for us. 
Going back to how he recapitulates Israel's history, recall that Israel was in the wilderness for a period of 40 years. And so he will go into the darkness for a period of 40. Look at verse 13. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus emerges victorious over the darkness. The serpent who led humanity from paradise to wilderness was met in the wilderness by the seed of Eve and he crushed his head. This leads me to point C on your outline. Jesus conquers in our place. Jesus came to save us. Jesus calls us to repentance. And Jesus conquers in our place. Jesus fulfills the Edenic promise. He pictures the people of covenant in triumph. Israel failed in the wilderness. Now Israel, the, the Messiah of Israel representing His people, conquers. Unlike Moses who strikes the rock and fails to enter, Jesus will be the rock stricken for His people and will lead His people into the land of promise for salvation. Church, He's victorious. He conquers in our place. He is Lord. He is mighty. None can stand against Him. No weapon formed against Him will prosper. And immediately after conquering for us, vanquishing our enemies, these wild beasts, the Lord proceeds to mission. He wastes no time. He punks the devil, and now He goes hunting for His demons. He'll push back the darkness of the wilderness, and now He's going to go into the city and push back the darkness hanging over the city. He leaves the mountains, the place of escape, and runs to the city to handle things, to throw down. Look at the text, verse 14. Now John had been taken into custody, and Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Look at this verse. The same message that got John in prison, Jesus picks up. Uh, I'll continue that message of the kingdom. I'll continue that message of repentance. I'll continue that message of coming to God in faith. He does it fearlessly. John is going to get his head sawed off for this. John's head will be on a platter. Jesus is no coward. He's the Christ. He, he picks up where John leaves off. Look at verse 15 saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king is there. If I say California in the house, you know, you're like, you're not California, Matt. I know, I'm representing, I'm representing the place. The king of the kingdom is here. The call of repentance he makes. The call of repentance was not a politically correct thing in that day, nor is it today. Calling people sinners and saying repent, that's not exactly the way to start a new company, to get a global following. I'm going to start a YouTube channel, and I want to monetize it and get ads and be popular. Hmm, for my first video, I'm going to call everyone sinners. Let's see if it gets liked. Uh, that's what Jesus does, because this is what love does. Love does not care about political correctness. Love loves in spite of how people are going to react to it. Uh, you, you know this. Uh, if, as, as just humans, you know that you love people, and people you love are going to do things that are wrong. And the loving thing to do is to say, hey, are you okay? Or hey, what's going on? You, you call it out. That's what love does. You, you don't worry if you love a person that they might be mad at me or something like this. Because your love will overwhelm you, so you'll say something. Jesus knows he would be rejected, but he still comes offering it because that's what love does. Unrequited love, rejection, that's okay. The Lord loves, the Lord is faithful. And 
from among those rejecting and unrepentant, the one who the Spirit descended upon would draw a people for himself. He would save. And he saves through the preaching of this hard message of repentance and faith in him and him alone. Then he continues that work, just as Jesus picks up from John. Jesus calls his people, disciples them, and we pick up for him. Which leads to the final point on on two on your outline. Jesus commissions us to go. So Jesus came to save, he calls to repentance, he conquers in our place, and he commissions us to go. Look at verse 16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 17, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls the saved to serve. He calls the fallen to freedom, and in their freedom, he calls them to fishing. He says, I I will make you this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you into faithful fishers. It is his work, which is obvious from their response. Look at verse 18. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. Immediately. That is clearly the power of the gospel. That is the power of the Spirit. That is the reality of Christ doing a work in them. If left to our own devices, you would never leave your nets. You wouldn't do that. Think of what a net is in that culture. That's how they feed their families. That, it would be like quitting your job, right? You know, the, around Christmas time, the little Salvation Army guys are out there ringing the bells and taking your coins or whatever. Uh, imagine the Salvation Army guys saying, hey, follow me and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll teach you how to ring the bell or whatever. And you just quit your job and ring the bell. You know, like you'd go, why would I do that? I have to feed my family. They're fishermen. That's their livelihood. That's their business. And not only are they feeding their own families through this, but families all in that community are being fed through them. They're they're providing a service. They're feeding their own, and they're feeding other families. A carpenter leaving his carpentry tools. A dentist leaving his dental chair. A teacher leaving his class. An x-ray tech leaving the x-ray machine. Uh, You know, a, 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 a AAA driver leaving his truck. A president leaving the Oval Office? Amen. Anyway, uh, you know, you get the idea. Depending on uh, who, what team you're on, that might be really great, right? You don't leave your nets. You, you don't do that. Why would you do that? Because it's a God thing. It's a God thing. God gets the credit for this. Uh, years back, I, I remember leaving a really good job to go into ministry. Um, some of you here have left jobs. You've left jobs as well uh, to be a part of ministry. This is the DNA of the church Jesus began. It started with these young people willing to leave their jobs. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to leave their jobs. Uh, we need Christians working. Uh, there's a whole theology of work. In fact, there's a whole uh, mission field at work. When you're at work... You have so many opportunities every day God brings people to you to share the gospel. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying to be a good follower of Jesus necessitates this. The point at hand is that God did a work in these men, and, and as a result of God's work, they did something crazy. They left their jobs. I wonder if the failure of the church to grow in our culture and the marginalization of the church 
in the West is due to our culture's idolatry of occupation. I don't know that we would walk away uh, from our jobs like this. We live in an era of workaholism. We train our kids to have their identity in their work. Uh, From a very early age, we ask kids, what do you want to do when you grow up, right? Before we even ask them questions like, who are you and, you know, what do you like or whatever, we we ask, you know, what do you want to do? Uh, We we reduce people's identities to, to what they do. We, we view humans not as human beings, but human doings. In fact, if you're in an elevator or small talking or whatever, what's one of the first questions people ask you? What do you do? What do you do? And in an unchecked, Christless capitalism, where what you do is everything, this leads to idolatry. In common American Christianity, uh, th- this also runs amok because we emphasize uh, me and God my individualism, my autonomy. So it's, you know, me and God, and then, you know, my family, and then my work. And somewhere way down here comes the church. The church, which is the bride of Christ. And like, like any young man, when he meets that special one, when he meets that woman that he wants to marry, he's willing to let go of everything to be with her. Um, Insert embarrassing story about when Matt met Erica. Get in trouble later when she hears the audio. Not going to do it. But, you know, you, you meet someone, you go, I, I'll do anything. I want her to be my bride. The priority of the church and mission is everything in the Christian New Testament. We pacify our guilt by uh, abandoning the mission of the church and coming up with ways of justifying it. Or, well, but I'm doing this good thing or I'm doing that good thing or whatever. Uh, it, they left everything to be a part of Christ's church. Look at verse 19. Going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. We see the power of Christ repeat itself. These guys are going to leave their jobs to become servants of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we live in a culture where folks, Christian folks, will do so many other things besides being servants of the church. They'll put their nets over worship, economics over mission, anxiety over action. And let's face it, we live in a culture of such affluence that many are not ditching mission for work. They're doing it for leisure and entertainment. They put more energy into Little League than catechism. Christian parents, more time in youth sports than youth group. Well, youth group can't get you a scholarship, but, you know, sports can. Exactly. Teach your kids that discounts to college are more important than being on mission with the church that Jesus died for and loves as his bride. Not to mention, there's a 0.02% chance that your child will become a professional athlete, but there's a 100% chance that your child will stand before God to give an account for their life. What are we doing in the rearing of our children? As we place an emphasis on occupation, cultural idolatry, and so many other things, we have to drop these nets. Now, now keep in mind, these need not be mutually exclusive things. You can, you can balance sports and entertainment and education and having fun and the rest with mission. You can do it together. These don't have to be mutually exclusive. But if at heart we're not willing to let go of our nets, then there is a problem. And it's not so much a matter of priority as it is a matter of power. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it makes me wonder if the Lord really has a hold on the American church. 
Because here I see when he calls, they come and they do it immediately. So if I see people not coming or coming half-hearted, I begin to wonder what's going on with the church. Have we been Christianized as opposed to being actually converted by Christ? See his power. Look at verse 20. What does it begin with? What does it begin with? Immediately. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they went away to follow him. See the power? They're willing to leave it all. In the gospel narratives, Jesus will encounter men like the young rich ruler who I think typifies uh, American experience. They will not leave it all behind. The passage offers a challenge to examine our hearts this morning and our souls. I do fear that rugged individualism in our culture has hijacked much of the American church to a degree that uh, many people reading passages like this will not go through self-examination and really you know, wrestle with, would I drop my nets? Is he worthy of, of, of everything? Now think about the irony in this too. Jesus is a carpenter, uh, which at that time... Uh, carpenters in, in that particular area, there's not a lot of wood laying around. Carpenters at that time were uh, stone, they were stonemasons. Uh, think, but think of the irony as a, a stonemason saying to professional fishermen, right, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Right? It'd be like a plumber telling a pilot, follow me and I'll teach you how to fly. <laughs> it's like, no, no, you, like go to the toilet thing, you know, like I, you're not going to teach me how to fly. You got, a, you got a carpenter saying like, hey, I'm going, to teach you, I'm going to teach you how to fish. And then again, walking away from your job. I think of the Christian martyr who was murdered, murdered 50 years ago, James Elliott. He sacrificed everything to serve Christ's church and the mission. In his journal entry on October 28, 1949, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Their nets could have been lost at sea, stolen by thieves, but the nets of gospel fishing are something that you cannot lose, something of everlasting consequence. After all, Jesus came to offer something of eternal significance himself, the eternal Son of God. So in conclusion, uh, let us commit a fresh Delray Church to being fishers of men, to, to examine ourselves of the things that we're not willing to let go of and, and, and cry out to God, God, I need you to do a work in me so that I have this immediate experience that I'm reading about in the Word of God. I, I need your power because I find myself still trying to hold on to things that you, that you have called me to let go of. We move from the message, the ministry of Jesus, thirdly on your outline, to implications for ministry. We've studied a passage about Jesus and his mission, to bring together folks to fish, fishing in the city to reach the lost. Now, you know, fishing in the ancient world and in our day are so, so different. Uh, so coming back to uh, familiarity, breeding content, uh, we're so familiar with fishing, but the problem is when we think about fishing in our culture, it looks something like this. Doesn't that look awesome, guys? You got the one guy, he's out there, you know, the kids, they're gone, you know, it's just quiet, you know, oh yeah, he's just by himself, he's got his pole, he's probably got, you know, a beverage or something close by, a little snack pack or whatever, and he's just out there by himself. Now, because this is our cultural image, and because we're familiar with the text, when we hear a call of 
fishing, we might think of something like this. But in the ancient era, fishing looks like this. It's a communal event. It's, and that's what Jesus is building his church and calling them to participate in his church. You fish with nets, not a pole in that culture. And those nets are heavy. It requires a team effort. Fishing was a communal event, but specifically, it was an event of families. Uh, families carry on businesses in that culture. And we saw that in the text. Uh, this, is a, this is a business the family had started. And, and now, uh, you know, this adds all the more insult that they would walk away from this. Economics were driven by family, not personal fulfillment. It took a family to make it happen. In that culture, it wasn't, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, my dad fishes, so I'm a fi- I, we fish. You know? My dad's a coppersmith, so that's what I'm going to do. This is also interesting for us in, in conclusion and thinking about how to apply the text, because what we are being taught here this morning is a, call, is a call not only to come to Christ, who calls us in repentance, who conquers in our place, who commissions us, but it's a call also to come to the church and to grow as a family, because this is a family business he's calling them into. The whole fishing thing drives home a call of family. Jesus was making a family. By the way, there's an excellent book, When the Church Was Family. Maybe we'll do it for book, book club sometime, written by uh, Dr. Hellerman. Uh, it, it's an incredible book. Incredible book. I want to quote from it as I'm, as I'm concluding here. Uh, in, in this book, he writes, it is hardly accidental that New Testament writers chose the concept of family as a central social metaphor to describe the kind of interpersonal relationships that were to characterize those early Christian communities. There is, in fact, no better way to come to grips with the spiritual and relational poverty of American individualism than to compare our way of doing things with the strong group surrogate family relations of early Christianity. Uh, Dr. Hellerman in this book deals with uh, New Testament data about family, church as family, focusing on Jesus, how he built the church as a family, and Paul, who is building the church as a family. I, I like the metaphor of family business because it helps you understand uh, the church. If you've ever been a part of a family business, you know that. I, I once worked in an ice cream shop that was a family business, and I was like one of two employees who weren't a part of the family uh, but they make you a part of the family. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll be in the back, cook a meal. You're a part of it. The family is doing this together. This is a part of what the family does. Um, Dr. Hellerman writes, It is no accident that Mark, writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, placed the material here in Mark. This, he's referencing what we just studied, verses 14 and 15. Uh, placing the material in verses 14 and 15 before the story of the call of fishermen. The two passages are to be read together. The behavior of Simon, Andrew, James, and John is intended to illustrate the proper response to Jesus' message in verses 14 and 15. Apparently, leaving one's father and following Jesus constitutes for Mark a paradigmatic example of what it means to repent and believe the good news. Again, exchanging one family for another is the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, So as we conclude, it is my prayer that we would see ourselves, Delray Church, It's not just people who come to a building on Sundays, but but as a family, as a family with a mission that he has given us. And the mission is before us here in this crazy city, this this crazy city that, that really needs this message. And this amazing God who has saved us and made us a part of his family. Don't let the familiarity of this breed content. 
You hear all the time, hey, go and share the gospel. Here's the gospel. Triune God. Let's go. Let's go fish. Don't let it breed content. We've been called to fish together. We must go. I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that grabbed my attention uh, in, in recent years, and it still kind of haunts me. The article was, Europe's empty churches go on sale. You can look it up. Europe's empty churches go on sale. And the article was about the wasteland of the West, where churches once thrived. It looked at hundreds of churches in Europe that have closed down. And, and the article kind of goes, like, what's happening with these buildings? The Church of England closes about 20 churches a year. Uh, roughly 200 Danish churches have been deemed non-viable and underused. Uh, Roman papalism has shut down about 515 churches in the past decade. The Netherlands is tragic. Two-thirds of their remaining 1,600 churches will be out of commission in the next 10 years. 700 of Holland's Protestant churches are expected to close within four years. The article looked at church buildings. It was fascinating. Here's a picture of St. Joseph's. Now it's a skateboard park. You see the church architecture. Not going to lie, that would be fun to do a little kickflip, but, you know, it's like, dang, this is weird. It's, mind you, it's not a skate ministry it's a skate park, okay? Here's a church in the Netherlands that has turned into a clothing store. In Edinburgh, Scotland, a Lutheran church has become a Frankenstein-themed bar featuring bubbling test tubes, lasers, and a life-size Frankenstein monster descending from the ceiling at midnight. In Bristol, England, the former St. Paul's Church has become a circomedia circus training school for tra trapezing. I mean, the church has been literally turned into a circus. Trapezing. What will come of the church in North America? We typically follow the pattern of what happens in Europe. Will we give ourselves to the Lord like those fishermen for the harvest of the city? Remembering that we're not doing mission for mission's sake, we're doing mission for Christ's sake. In, uh, in the book, Let the Nations Be Glad by Dr. John Piper, he reminds us that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. What drives us is that we love God. What drives us is that, that he saved us so that we can serve and worship him. What, what, what drives us to share this good news with our, our friends is that they would know him and come to be known by him and join in worshiping him. Now, the cool thing, uh, uh, by way of hope here as I land the plane, uh, the stats are showing that actually the church in America isn't dying. It's actually not dying. Um, we're, we're actually seeing that the churches are dying are those that have already walked away from the gospel. In other words, they were functionally doing circus stuff before they literally turned into circuses. Uh, the churches that are actually uh, standing on the gospel so-called conservative churches, are, are actually still growing and still thriving. And so there's, there's hope. We see the power of God on the move. We regularly see people come to Christ, and it's absolutely exciting. In my uh, work in Europe, you know, I've been in churches that, where like, they haven't seen someone come to know the Lord in a long time. We, we are seeing people coming to Christ. God is being merciful to us. But as a church, I think a message like Mark 1 is one for us to say, I know I have blind spots. I know I need to get busy with this work. I'm reminded of Matthew 9, where Jesus goes through all the cities and the villages, proclaiming the gospel. He sees the crowds and has compassion on them. 
They're harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. And that's what I want to close in. I want to pray that God would send us out into this harvest. Will you go? Will you give? Will you cry out to God, revealing me what, what am I holding back? Come, church. Come to the Lord of the harvest. Come to the greatest fisherman. Come, come to the shepherd of your soul. Come to Him. Cast your sin on Him. In repentance there is life. His mercies are new every morning. Come to the communion table today and remember what He has done. His blood shed for you. His, his body broken for you. Come to Him. Seek Him. He's calling you to Himself. And He's sending you to go out into His fields for the glory of His name. He calls you. Come. Let's pray. Let's worship Him. Father, we thank You for the sending of Your Son. We thank You for Your Spirit who draws us to the Son. We thank You for the table before us that points us to what Your Son has accomplished for us. Smitten, stricken, and afflicted. afflicted, Broken for us. Symbolized in the bread. Death He took. He bled out for us. Symbolized in the cup. As we come to these symbols, Lord, may the reality of which they point to be evident within us. May they draw us in repentance and faith today that we would be like your early church who immediately responds when you speak. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Call, call to us, we pray. Open our eyes to see the things that are, that are holding us back from the joy of the Lord. Receive these songs of worship, our offering, uh, this time at the table, Lord, as, as acts that we do to glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.